G'day guys and girls, thank you so much for joining us on episode 10 of The Hard Yards. Before we jump into this week's episode, I want to say a massive thank you to the some 22,000 plus people who've either watched or listened into last week's episode with Aussie golfing legend Adam Scott. What an amazing response. Before we also jump into this week's chat, I just want to have a slight apology to you listeners out there. As my actual audio comes through a little bit quiet on this chat, my guest is loud and clear, and he's the one you want to listen to anyway, so I hope you enjoy the chat. Welcome to episode 10 of the Hard Yards podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. If this is your first episode, And you are joining me because of tonight's guest. That is awesome. Thank you and welcome to the episode. If you've been a regular, I can't thank you guys enough. And um, thank you for sharing the love around. It's been awesome to get some wonderful messages about people enjoying my podcast while they're on the road. Uh, Truck drivers driving along, listening to uh, me talk to sports people is, is a very cool thing for me to hear. So I will continue to keep doing it while you guys are enjoying it. Tonight, I have... A fellow Brisbane boy joining me in Aussie tennis superstar, and I have to say, an all-round great guy, John Millman. Currently, John's ranked 43 in the world for his tennis, but maybe more importantly for him at the moment, he's ranked ninth in the Brisbane Golf Club C-grade club championships with one round to play and the top eight qualifying through the match play. So, John, with all of that, thanks for joining me on the Hard Yards tonight. Yeah, look, it's uh, definitely the golf's the priority right now, and... um... (laughs) I've got my work cut out for me in, in uh, Brisbane Golf Club C-grade club champs, but there's a few areas in the game that I think I can improve, and uh, I'll pick your brains maybe after the podcast as to how I can do that. <laughs> oh, it was awesome to have you come on out and share a little bit of my love and passion of golf with you the other week, and uh, I can tell you, for anyone at Brisbane Golf Club who sees John's name on the timesheet in a four-ball best ball, He's great value in C-grade at the moment. He really is. He'll make some pars. He'll make a few birdies. He might throw the odd 13 in there as well, but he's going to be great value. So how, uh, speaking of which, um, obviously you've got some time to play some golf at the moment because of what's going on around the world. I must say, watch the news last night, John, for the first time in, I would say, years, actually just sat down and watched the, night, the 6 o'clock news. It's frightening. The world's a frightening place at the moment, and we're pretty lucky to be living in Australia, I think. Yeah, 100%. And the tough thing with tennis is, is that it involves uh, a lot of international travel and a lot of international players coming from, from all corners of the globe. You know, a little bit like golf, really. Uh, I think it kind of flies under the radar just how big this sport is. And you can really um, mm. see that uh, during a time like the, the COVID-19 and why it's, it's been so hard to get up and running again. It's a traveling circus, the ATP Tour. It, goes from one place to the next and to coordinate all that international travel, all those international players coming in to play a bit of tennis. It, it's extremely difficult, but we've got an announcement actually tonight oh, wow. or probably when I wake up as to the U S open look coming from my point of view, I don't think it probably should go ahead, but uh, money talks. The USTA is in a bit of debt. I think they've done a, a lot of, uh, refurbishments lately they've got a massive new tennis center in orlando i think the atp is desperate to get some matches on too um so money talks and and i think from what i've heard the whispers going around is that that's going to be uh green lights for the us open so there you go it's uh it's pretty interesting um i think uh the players are quite divided 
on it. Um, some players feel comfortable going there. Others probably don't. Um, I'm probably in, in that category that's kind of erring on the side of caution after I've seen just how well Australia's done with the COVID and, and probably, um, you know, with all due respect, probably how, how poorly, a, you know, a place like the United States has done. Um, so it's, it's a really tricky situation, but, you know, I'll, I'll look forward to waking up and hearing the uh, final verdict. Do you, in that circumstance, John, look at the other sports that are kicking off in the US and, and are they sort of some sort of barometer for you as to, you know, whether, you know, you're going to be packing your bags and heading over or not? So the PGA Tour, obviously NBA's um, looking like restarting as well. Um, so are you going to wait and see what sort of how that transpires? I know we were talking to Adam Scott about that last week and he's still sitting here in Australia while the PGA Tour kicked off last week. Mm. waiting to see what happens uh, on the PGA Tour. So same sort of ideas for you? It's a really difficult one with the tennis, uh, especially at my rank, which is, which is good, 43 in the world. The way the, the point system works, it's, it's a rolling one-year cycle. So if I get a point this time, uh, this year, in, in 2021 on June the 15th, I'll lose that point. So right. uh, it, once they kind of say, you know, okay, go and play, um, someone like myself at 43 in the world uh, probably doesn't have the luxury as, as to someone like a, a Roger Federer or a, or a Rafael Nadal or a Novak Djokovic where they've got plenty of points in the bank and, um, and they can be maybe a little throw caution to the wind a little more. So for me, it's, it's, it's a little trickier. I've got to, um, I've probably my hands forced a little bit as to, as to going when they say go. And, and uh, if that's in the United States and that's in the United States, two weeks later, obviously, is the French Open, which is on clay, a completely different service. That's unprecedented to go from hard court to clay in best of five set tournaments that go over two weeks in such quick succession. So that's going to be another chore on the body. The last time I went so quickly from hard court to clay court, I tore my rotator cuff and had my second significant shoulder surgery a while back. So I'll have to be really careful yeah, in that respect too. Um, I kind of felt that we could have probably kicked off on the, in, in the clay court season. I think in Europe, they're combating the, the COVID um, a, little, a little better now. Obviously, they had their problems. And, uh, but as far as I know, the USTA kind of, you know, really need this to go ahead. And uh, I think that's uh, talking right now. Wow, amazing. So is the French confirmed? French Open confirmed? Or... It's not confirmed. Uh, their date is confirmed, although the French Open's date is obviously uh, normally about a month ago, actually, in, yeah. in, in May. And uh, they kind of just moved that without telling anyone. So that caught everyone by surprise, even the guys at the ATP. Uh, I think even the top-rate players, the Players' Council, all of those guys okay. were... We're There's really caught. On that yeah, and the WTA also. So yeah. I think all the players were caught by surprise with that one. They actually put it in, in the week that the Labor Cup was on. So I, I think that probably caught Roger by surprise too. Uh, so you never know. The, the French could maybe even push it back even further. But yeah. there is that time, that time period where you have to get those tournaments going because that's going to be, you know, getting on towards the end of September then. Once you start getting a little bit later, that, that weather starts to really turn as we start to go through the season. Sure. So they are under a few time constraints now, but uh, I think from what I've heard, they're very confident. Guy Forget, um, you know, did an announcement a week ago that he was very confident that it was going to go ahead. He's the tournament okay. director there. 
So um, look, I can see how that one's probably uh, more manageable. Um, the US one is going to be really tricky, but like I said, from what I heard, that's uh, all systems go. Amazing. And, and what about crowds? Has there been any chatter about mm. crowds? Because I can't imagine you playing tennis tournaments without a crowd. Look, as far as I can tell right now, from what I've heard, there's going to be no crowds unless oh, wow. you know there's a massive turnaround in that in that COVID situation. For myself, uh, you know, it's been a while since I haven't played in front of um, you know decent-sized crowd. crowds, I guess. But I did experience uh, the lower ends of the tour, so maybe I'll use that as an <laughs> advantage. I'm normally someone that really likes to use the crowd and I love getting the energy from people in the crowd. It's just how I've always kind of operated, but I am very familiar with playing uh, <laughs> in the middle of Romania and Petest with, uh, I reckon, you know, if we're lucky, a man and his dog was watching. So uh, I will be used to that. Um, I'll just have to, you know, just go into the memory bank and, and uh, it shouldn't take me too long to get used to <laughs> Oh, that's awesome, isn't it? How funny, isn't it? Because we were talking about your golf before and the last thing you'd want is 50 people around the first tee. <laughs> but when you're on the tennis court in your domain and your skill set, you know, you're quite comfortable playing in front of the, the thousands that flock into a, you know, Rod Laver Arena or, or the, the other fantastic venues at Wimbledon and the French Open and US Open, obviously, Flushing Meadows. So um, let's touch on the, the what it's like for you then preparing at the moment we'll go back into look a little bit about your journey as we go along but right now you were very very kind and and allowed this um you know this sports fanatic matty guy into your training session the other morning at uh seven o'clock out at the tennis center and i loved it mate it was uh one of the best mornings of my life you <laughs> might not realize that but you know i'm a the people that know me know how fanatical I am about Australian sport. And so I'm a big fan, a big fan of yours, a big fan of anyone playing um, and putting the, the, the colours on for Australia in sport around the world, no matter what they're doing. But to get in and watch an elite athlete train the way you did um, was a fantastic thing. Talk us through what's training like for you at the moment and when does it start to ramp up? And, you know, what's it like in COVID versus normal in a normal week of training at the moment? Yeah, well, to begin with, when I, when I flew back from Indian Wells, which was uh, after Davis Cup, I flew to Indian Wells. And, and the, the day I landed, I actually had a round of golf and, and I, I shot some big numbers again. <laughs> and uh, I got off the golf course and I was told that uh, they've just cancelled Indian Wells because there was one case of, of the COVID-19 in the Coachella Valley region. So it seems quite ironic that we're going to go over to, to America now where there's a few more. Uh, but when I came back, uh, obviously Australia started to get into to their lockdown and, and protocols. So to begin with, I was actually just trying to do enough to keep my eye in. Uh, I wasn't able to go and hit at uh, the National Tennis Centre, uh, the Queensland Tennis Centre yeah. at Tennyson, where I do my training, where, where you watched a, a session. Uh, and I actually did a, a newspaper article. I was just interviewed and as a bit of a joke, I said, if anyone's got a hard court, can they let me know in their backyard? And, you know, I was inundated with a few messages from, from people who do have hard courts in their backyards. And, and I was so lucky that these families kind of took me in and, and obviously following the government protocol here in Queensland, we could get, you know, one slot of exercise a day and, and people could only have two people, uh, visitors, guests into their household. So yep. 
I'd bring over uh, one of the hitting boy, one of the other tennis tennis boys that I hit with, and uh, yeah, we, we'd we'd have a bit of a bash, and and then we'd go on our way. And at home, I set up a bit of a home gym to try to keep my strength up, my my physicality, something that I really pride myself when I'm on the court, and it's a big part of my game. So I think it's really important to to keep that going. And now the, the restrictions have eased a little bit. I'm, I'm back at tennis, and obviously that's a little bit easier to to be back there and and um, just to be able to go through your routines and to be able to, to use the warm-up areas and, and just have more gym equipment to, to use. And, and obviously the courts there are, are amazing, but really grateful early on to, to those families for, for letting Absolutely. me go and hit them. And, it, and it's been great. I actually played golf with, uh, with um, one of the boys whose, whose parents let me go and hit there. We, we yeah, played nice. in the club champs together. He beat me. So, um, <laughs> you know, uh, it's not over yet though. Uh, but but it was it was it was so much fun, and these courts, I'm telling you, were actually unbelievable. I, I hit it uh, mainly three three different places because I didn't want to make a pain of myself and be there every day yeah. at the one place. But uh, it was it was it was awesome, and and these courts were were pretty nice. I tell you, uh, I've came to figure that if you've got a a, a hard court in your backyard, um, you're doing all right for yourself because these courts were awesome. Uh, it kind of reminded me when I in between French and, and Wimbledon, um, I got a call up from Sevi Luti, who's Roger Federer's Swiss coach. And, and uh, he said, can you get to Zurich, John? Because um, Roger needs someone to hit with for a few days on a grass court. And I said, yeah, of course. Of course. <laughs> I mean, that's Roger. Yeah. Uh, so I, 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 this in 2018. So I went to um, Switzerland. I, I played a bit of club tennis there, which you touched on in the in- intro initially. I have some friends there, so I stayed at their place, and we hit at a, a guy's a guy's house uh, who I, I since found out, and I, I could probably tell that he was the 29th richest man in the world. He had a grass court in his backyard, and literally uh, about three meters from the sideline of the court, and you know it had one of those makeshift fences that were about knee height, um, was the Lake of Zurich. So I'm hitting on grass. It's pretty soft grass, and and uh, all I'm and Roger's probably one of the the most accomplished grass court players we've ever seen. And uh, all I'm thinking of, man, I can't shank this first ball into the lake. <laughs> you know, I don't want to do that. But luckily, the sessions went well. Uh, I think Sevi and Roger were fine with my hitting, and uh, the cool downs in the Lake of Zurich were, were pretty cool. So uh, I have uh, I have had a bit of experience of hitting in backyard courts. My parents had one back in the day, but. Um, yeah, it, it always provides a nice change of scenery and, and it's a bit of a change up, but definitely it's nice to be back home, uh, at Tennyson and, and, uh, and doing what I, what I like doing, which is getting stuck in. And, and now after this announcement that I'm expecting tonight, there's probably about a two month window until it, it, it's game day. And I feel like I've been keeping in pretty good nick and, and, you know, my, my level is, is not far away. There's definitely things that can get better. Uh, but I'll start really ramping it up now, especially the hours on court, um, trying to get specific, but also really trying to get that load in because getting ready for a best of five set tournament is a little bit different. I, I love sure. the feeling of, of hitting a lot of balls and, and have played a fair bit of tennis going into a grand slam. So we're in a unique situation that we're going to go straight into it, dive headfirst into it. But um, I'm someone who really likes to go into that tournament and, and thinking that I've you know, got the runs on the board. I've spent time at the crease and, and uh, I'm ready to go. Does that mean, you know, s- sourcing yourself some decent hitting partners? Does Leighton sort of pull the team together within Australia and, you know, 
you know, have some, some structured work, even though it's not Davis Cup yep. or what it's called nowadays. It's something different, right? Um, no, no, it's still the Davis Cup. We've got the HB Cup too, but we've yeah, still got the Davis yeah, Cup. Yeah. It's just a slightly tweaked format. But yes. look, yeah, Leighton, look, we have had camps in the past and, and I love being a part of them because, yeah. you know, Leighton Hewitt, Jamin Crabb, who's Davis Cup coach, who does a little bit of travel with me also, and Tony Roach. I mean, it doesn't yeah, get better yeah. than that. Having Tony and, and Leighton on the court, and it's probably why I like Davis Cup so much. I think it's uh, to be able to tap into those guys' minds. And also, Leighton, uh, probably growing up, being a Queenslander, it was all about Paddy Rafter. But yes. as I started to see that I wasn't much of a Sir Volier, uh, Leighton <laughs> was someone, his tenacity and, and his physicality that he presented every single time, uh, his ability to get into that, that battle mindset every time he walked onto the court was something that I grew to just admire because it was something that I tried to base my game off. So being able to tap into him and then I can see a little bit, I'm sure he grew up with it, but I know he was mentored a lot from Tony Roach. And if you've done a session with Tony Roach, um, you'll still be probably pretty sore from it because Roachy is there and he is an absolute workhorse. He will wow. work you like you wouldn't believe. Um, you're sore, you're tired by the end of it, but you know that you've put in a real shift. And, and uh, being able to, to be with those guys is something that I live for. Now, I'm not sure how it'll work because, you know, the Queensland borders are still shut here. But luckily enough, we've got a, a really good team out at the National Tennis Centre uh, in Brisbane. Um, you know, Wayne Arthurs, Mark Draper, some of the boys there, Jason Kubler, Blake Ellis, Matt Baines, Akira Sandland, we're doing some really good work out there. And, and, uh, and then I top it off on the side by, by doing a few specifics work with a, with a guy that I've been doing a lot of work with since I was a, a 12-year-old. So I try to top things off and I try to just get that little bit of extra load in because it works for me. And it's horses for courses a little bit. Yeah, sure. um, I've, I've learned over the many years now that I've been doing this, uh, I'm 31 now, so um, you know that's a bit of a depressing number, but uh, I've learned over that time kind of what works for me and I'm still trying to learn. And uh, so I'll try to tap into that and try to be best prepared going into the US Open uh, if my sources are correct and it's going ahead. Yeah, I'll, I'll share this with the listeners out there. And, you know, there's, there's some people watching, uh, you know, this podcast recording, but, you know, for the listeners out there as well, I'll share this with them that I arrived at the court with John, uh on thursday morning it was last week and uh he does his little warm-up in the car park and gets himself going and does a bit of running around and his hitting partner he spoke of arrives and we make our way through to one of the courts and john goes down one end of the court and lab goes down the other end of the court and uh he's got a box of balls and john hits one to him and it goes back and it goes back and it goes back and then it goes back and by this stage after about four balls in John, you're ripping it. Bit of a nice run happening as well. Yeah. That first rally, I think that first rally went for about 45 or 50 hits. <laughs> it was unbelievable. And when it finally finished, I think my jaw was on the ground. I just couldn't believe that this was the first, you know, the first rally of the day and you were straight into it. You'd warmed your body up already. And it was still a warm up for you, but from a from an innocent bystander watching on it was unbelievable and then you came over after about five minutes and apologized that today was going to be a light session <laughs> <laughs> what's it like when you do a 
a hard yakka session. Like, you know, obviously I saw an hour and a half of hitting roughly, I think from memory. Yep. And then you did a half an hour of training uh, with a strength conditioning guy who came on in and did some awesome work with you as well. Um, how does it ramp up from that? What's a normal week? Of training so yeah well the t- tomorrow will be very similar i've actually got lav out there again uh and i've got i'm going to do the specific work with lav with the ball feed and then uh tubs is going to come out there and, and do some specific movement work that actually we had a bit of a chat about where i think um in my game that that i want to really fine tune so end range balls accelerating decelerating um and so we've kind of designed just you know just just a little bit of a touch up to yep. do a few times a week just to kind of fine tune that. Uh, and then after that, I'll go on and probably do about a two, two and a half hour session. Um, I like to go back to back to back. And again, it's horses for courses, what sure. works for you. And, sure. and for me, I like to, to really get a big amount of load in, in a row. And, and now that I know that Grand Slam tennis is what I'm, what I'm up for, uh, hour and a half, half hour straight into it. And then two and a half hours, all of a sudden, you know, I've emulated a four, four and a half hour session straight away, which is, can be a big five set match. Yes. Uh, so look, I'm going to start building that up. I'll probably do that twice a week. And then on the other half, I'll, I'll I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in the gym and, and I'm also doing probably two and a half hours and then maybe some serves in between those sessions. So it's, it's something that, like I said, as I've gotten older, I have to train a bit smarter also. And this is not something that you can do forever because, uh, you know, I haven't been able to do this for the last three months because my body isn't what it was when it was 20, which is probably a good thing because I had a couple of surgeries by then. But (laughs) it does does wear you out. Tennis is, you're not getting those hits that you're getting in in rugby or AFL, but it's extremely physical, especially when you grow up in Australia and you're playing on hard courts a lot. And, you know, half half the year we're on hard courts now too. So it's so hard on the body. I mean, that's pretty much yeah. concrete that you're running on the whole time. So, you know, your knees feel it, your groins feel it. Um, even just the, the, the force that goes through your wrist to your elbow, to your shoulder, um, it hurts. It's, it's, it really starts to hurt. And, and in the colder conditions like we're experiencing now, luckily not too cold, but everything takes, you know, a little bit longer to warm up and, and you just got to be a little more diligent with your cool downs also. So, Look, I'm trying to train smart, but I'm also, it, it's kind of that catch 22 a little bit. I, I struggle with training smart because on the flip side, I'm a guy that wants to get that load in and I want to be able to, to, to bring physicality to my game. And the, and the way I've always known how to do that is to work as hard as I can on the court yeah. for an extended period of time. That fine balance, isn't it? Finding yeah. That, that's what 100%. you said. It's horses for courses. So it's finding the fine balance for, for, for John Millman that works effectively. One of the things that was fascinating watching you do was that specific training you spoke about. And, you know, um, one of the things you had your hitting partner do to you was hit this little slice backhand into your mid-court ball on the backhand side, which you said, you know, was something that Roger Federer is very, very good at doing. Yeah. And, and it's an attacking play from Roger Federer to bring his opponent into a mid-court position where he's required to hit, hit a low to high shot or get it up quickly and over yeah. and then back down. Um, I was watching your victory over Roger Federer um, earlier this afternoon, and I'm not sure if you remember Match Point. Do you remember what happened on Match Point? I, I think 
I was I was serving, yes. and I think I I hit a bit of a tight second serve that that only just got the back of the line. I didn't have a, a lot of revolutions on it. Um, I'm not totally sure what happened. I do remember that he hit a forehand long. I do remember yeah. at some stage in the rally he hit a forehand long. So let re- uh, let let me remind you of what happened. He he uh, he. You served it, and he hit a backhand slice return yep. straight into the midcourt yep. on your backhand side, which you got in, dug out, got back relatively deep, which he hit yep. one. He didn't get a chance to get around and rip his forehand, which you're training for that to happen, yep. not to happen. And then he hit one, and then you ripped another one, and then his forehand went long. And match point number three was uh, good enough for, for what was probably the biggest win in your career yep. at that stage um, against... Arguably the greatest of all time. Mm. Um, what was it like when you had lost two match points, John? Well, look, I know I, I knew I had a couple more in the bag. I knew I had a couple on serves. So obviously you want to, you know, put them away quicker. And I found out at the Australian Open, yeah, I didn't have match points. Sure. But, you know, those, those serving points are so important. And, and at the US Open and even at the Australian Open, it was really hard to come by three points on serves. So, yeah. Look, it's, it's, it's never easy. I think it's one of the toughest things to run through the finish line against sure. you know, one of the best ever players in the world. And there's a reason they're so good is because the, they, they turn up when it counts. Uh, I felt an overwhelmingly, and I actually at the Australian Open also, I've been lucky in, in that sense in those couple of matches because it doesn't always work out like that. But I felt um, an overwhelming sense of calmness uh, pretty yeah, much right. throughout the entirety of that match. At the start, you're a little bit startled a little bit. And he actually played some great tennis. He was up a set and I think serving at 5-3 in the second. But as I kind of dug my teeth into that match at Flushing Meadows in, in, in New York, I felt very calm throughout the match. And, and normally when nerves start happening, um, your legs get heavy. You know, that's, that's one of the signs. When the legs aren't moving so well, um, you know, those nerves are starting to kick in. The legs felt fresh. The legs felt really good. And another thing is, is, is having clarity. So when you get nervous, you stop thinking clearly. And, and the biggest thing that you can have is, is clarity. So, you know, in between points, Rafael Nadal, I think, does it better than anybody else. He resets. He's clear in the head as to what he wants to do. He goes out there and tries to execute it. And at that point, I was thinking really clearly still. Uh, so those nerves actually didn't quite kick in. And... There was a lot of belief there too. Uh, you put, I'm a big believer in, in not playing anyone's reputation and that's hard sometimes. For sure. In tennis where it's an individual sport but you've got to beat the, the guy at the other end of the court. Yeah. Um, so it's an individual sport. It's a bit like boxing without the, the hits. Uh, you've yeah. got to beat the guy at the, end, at the other end of the court. Uh, and I'm a big believer in not playing anyone's reputation because as soon as you do that, the good thing about tennis is regardless of, of how much money they've got to put into their team around them or the fact that they might play everybody match on that court and this is your first time on it, the one thing that you do get to do in tennis and the one thing that is even is that you start off at zero wall. You know, when you walk to the net and you're about to do the coin toss at zero wall. And uh, I think the last thing you should be doing is thinking about the guy that you're playing in terms of, you know, what they've accomplished and, and you know their reputation as soon as you start doing that you're you're up against it and uh you can't be putting these guys on a pedestal so is that uh, sorry is that something that's something you've learned though over the course of your career though i would imagine 
So, you know, when you first face those guys coming through challenges and making main draws for mm. the first time on, on the world stage uh, mm. and you're facing someone, a big name at the other end, and let's say it's a, you know, let's say it's not one of those super big names, but let's say it's a Marcus Bagdadis or, yep. you know, or someone like that. Um, it's a learned skill, I imagine. Yeah, look, I, th I think it's, it's, it's the experience. It's the, the sense of, of belief that you belong. Because yeah. early on, you don't have that. Uh, and I'm not talking at the ATP level. I'm not talking at Grand Slam level. I'm talking early on when you first play your first future event in Spain and you're, you're one of 128 players in qualifying. And you're looking around and you're going, oh my goodness, the level is so good here. And I've got to win four rounds before I get into a future to play for one point, you know? Play for a yeah. hundred bucks. Yeah. I was um, say, what are you playing for there? What's the well, you're not playing for anything to uh, for qualifying. You're getting no money there. No, of course. So you got to win four matches in probably two days or something, two or three days. Three, uh, three setters, obviously. Or yeah, yeah, six. best of three. Yeah, best, best of three. three. Uh, so, but once you start qualifying at these ones and and you start winning matches and then you start winning futures, you make that step up to to challenger level. And then that happens all over again. You're like, well, have I maxed out my, my level here? You know, is, is yeah, this right. level a bit too good? I don't know. Like, I want to go back to where I'm comfortable back in those futures. But at the same time, you know that, you know, that goal of being maybe a top 100 player or that goal of playing at Wimbledon or that goal of representing your country at Davis Cup, that ain't going to happen back in future level. That ain't going to happen in challenger level. That happens at Grand Slam level. So... You have to kind of just go through this process again. This, this almost this, you're learning your game and, and you're fine tuning your game and you're trying to get it better. So it's like an apprenticeship also. But what you're also doing is, is you're learning to believe in yourself too. Mm. And this, that's not easy. That is not easy. There's a lot of moments of, of doubt. There's a lot of moments of self-doubt. There's a lot of moments of, man, is, is this worth it? You know, like... Like this is tough. It's really tough, and you're on the other side of the world. You you've got no money, and and <laughs> yeah, but in the back of your head, you want it because you think about those Davis Cup moments and and what you know. My first memory, one of my first live tennis matches I think I ever watched, apart from the tournaments out at Milton. You know, one of the big tennis matches I watched was when. Australia was playing a semi-final against Russia in, in, uh, at ANZ Stadium at, in at QE2. They QE2, warmed up yeah. at QE2 and then they'd yeah, go Brizzy. and play at ANZ in Brizzy. And, uh, and, and, and as a kid, you, I mean, that inspires you. That just gets you going. And as a kid, you dream of being, uh, you dream of winning Grand Slams, don't you? Like as a kid, it's, it's like a golfer, you dream of, of getting sure. the, the green jacket at Augusta. And, and that's brilliant because as a kid, you, you're not um, restricted in, and, and you don't have any of that almost scar tissue in your head of, yeah, sure. of, uh, of maybe realism. Um, and, and you don't know what's out there. So as a kid, you dream and you lose that a little bit when you get older, for sure. When you start to have experiences, you do lose that a little bit. When you start those, losing, right? Well, you do, and, and those dreams change, and, and I, don't, I don't ever want to admit that, really. You know, it's a really tough thing to admit that, um, that shivers, man. I'll just be happy with, 
with playing an Australian Open main draw. You know, yeah. that's a hot, hell of a lot different to what I was dreaming of as a kid. But but you you still you you still want the best for you. And and, and I think just just there was a slight change in in my, my my mentality at some stage. And and it was I want to be the best player that I can possibly be. You know, whatever level that is. Um, whether I cap out at, at challenger level, you know, winning one challenger and whether that's my greatest achievement, I want to be the best possible player that I can be. I, I liken it to like a lemon, you know, and, and you're trying to squeeze that lemon dry. You know, you're trying to get every little last bit of juice out of that lemon. And if I can do that when I'm finished playing tennis, and, and that's one of the reasons I still play because I still think there's a little bit of juice left. Um, if I can do that now, that's what I want. Uh, and with that, hopefully, results come my way. Uh, and, and so it, your dreams change just a slight bit and your goals change maybe just a slight bit. But probably it's more about the process now that gets me excited, that gets me motivated. And with that then comes, um, hopefully, the, the reward of, of, of a few special moments that, that you remember long after you finish playing tennis. And I've definitely had some of them Already. I've had some absolute rippers. Mm. That match that you mentioned with Roger is definitely one of them. Mm. Um, but, you know, you, you still think that you've got a couple more left in you. The, the difficulty of your futures and your challenges, and, and you spoke about, you know, trying to fund your tennis career and furthering that development, as you were just talking about, through club tennis in the UK as well. You're doing all of that, I imagine, pretty much on your own without, yep. you know, this box of trainer and coach and all this sort of stuff. So how do you, how did you work on your game in mm. those days, John? How did you know or get advice or we don't have what we've got now, which is mm. what we're doing here and we're linking up in different parts of the world on a, even though we're both in Brisbane tonight, but, you know, we, we can link across the world and talk to your coach face-to-face nowadays and there's incredible technology. There's video technology where they can, you know, get your serving on video and you can send it on a, you know, on a, on a mobile phone device these days. So, you know, what did you do back then? How did you go about it? Because I can't imagine you had any money to have a coach across the world with you. Yeah, definitely not. So uh, how it would start, I played most of my club matches in the end and I'll get to that in, in, in the end, it was in Germany and Switzerland where I played the majority of it. It's actually in Europe, you're blessed because they've got some stuff in Italy. They've got some stuff in the UK. They've got some stuff in France um, where you can get little top-ups. But you're right. Look, for, for me, um, I think it really helped growing up. I wasn't necessarily, I was in a couple of state squads. Um, I got a lesson a week through QAS with Jeff Masters. But I did my school tennis. Uh, and a lot of the time... Um, I was already sourcing my own hits back then. My parents managed a tennis center and I would source some of my hits. Uh, I would get the ball machine out there and I would hit, you know, thousands of balls against the ball machine. I wasn't in, you know, AIS programs and I wasn't necessarily uh, one of the ones identified from the federation that I would be a, you know, a great tennis player. I went to, down a completely different road. I did all my schooling nowadays in tennis. And, and even back then 
you'd have kids that would do the distance education or correspondence schooling and they'd play this whole junior world circuit where they'd play the junior grand slams and all that and like a full-time schedule at 15 16 17 for me i i did the schooling and then when i kind of finished school i took a breath and i'm like i want to give this tennis a go um i was helped by a couple of really good people just you know to to kind of get me started uh but but also on the other side, I also didn't really want my parents to, to put in too much money or anything because, you know, they'd already sent me to school. They'd sent all my sure. sisters to school. They're the hardest working people I know. Uh, and so if I wanted to chase a dream, um, I wanted to see if I could do it, you know, off my back. And, and no doubt some people helped me along the way. And I'm forever grateful for that. But tennis is expensive. You know, it's really expensive. Um, especially if you're not getting a hell of a lot of external funding, you have to find a way to do it. And I knew that I also had to improve. I had to get better. And like you said, it's really tough when you're overseas without a coach. When I got back home, I did a lot of work with Gary Stickler, who really had a, had a vision as to where tennis was heading and he was spot on with it. So I was really lucky there. Um, but I think the times, because my, my tennis was so reduced when I was at school, uh, the times I did step on the court, I tried to be as intense as possible. It was just something that, um, you know, my peers, my colleagues, the other better tennis players in Australia, they're doing this full time and they're doing three times the amount of hours that I'm doing. And so I already had that mentality probably as a 15, 16 year old that whenever I stepped on the court and probably went back to when I was like eight years old, you know, like I was you know, I was fiery out there and I was just as intense as I possibly could. And actually that held me in really good stead. And it taught me some really good skills when I started traveling because I was used to, to going out on court and, and really pushing myself to, to the limit. And I think that that's where I got most of my improvement um, was, you know, I'm doing an hour session with someone who, to begin with, I was, you know, that was one of the toughest things when I first started traveling was asking a random guy to hit with me. You know, that's at the tournament too. I was a bit shy, you know. Yeah. But, you know, whenever I walked on the court, I, I really wanted to uh, to get the most out of that session. And, and, it, and bit by bit, I started to improve. But it's not easy. When you're overseas, I'd go away for, for five, five and a half months at a time. And, and you can get a little bit stale when you're by yourself um, for such an extended period of time. And, I would go to Europe because there were lots of futures events in Europe and, you know, you could catch a train or a plane one hour, one and a half hours and you'd be at the next tournament, but it's expensive. I think tennis, you're under this conception because misconception, I should say, because you see uh, the Australian public sees tennis at the Australian open and it looks amazing. Doesn't it? Like it's, a, it's yeah. such a good tournament to look at. Uh, but the, the that's only a little that you know that's the cherry on top of the cake uh, and we just and we just hear you know first round losers picking up 60 grand yeah 100 percent. well the first round loser at a you know at a future if you're in the main draw and sometimes you have to win four matches to get to that main draw if you if you lose first round of future you get zero points and you also zero um are getting probably about 150 bucks right right you know 200 dollars uh, and then that week you paid for your, your accommodation, you're paying for food, you're paying for your restrings, you're paying for your flights to get there. So that adds up pretty quickly. And, 
it became a matter of when I was over there, I got to win matches this week or else I can't get out of this place. <laughs> and, and you could have lost John Millman forever. Oh, well, you know, knowing what I know now, and I think my parents didn't really know what was going on, but I mean, I, I don't know if I, I, I yeah, because I, I don't know if mum would have let me. She would have been no, freaking right. out. Like, uh, there were, and I don't want to, when I'm telling you this, I don't want people to think, oh, John Millman, what a, you know, what a battle, what a, you know, he's done so well in this, because this is the reality yeah, absolutely. Oh, that that a lot of the players are facing. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I, I, I don't want a little sob story here because this is the reality of, of what a lot of players are facing. So I if you're losing, in, you would... In, sorry, John. I think, I think that's important that you say that because the whole purpose behind me, you know, having these chats with our Australian elite sports people is to share the journey, you know, mm. and that it's not just the private jets and the, and you know, the glory that goes with being an elite sportsman, but you have gone through the hard yards as you know, hence the name of the podcast to get there. And, but at the same token, I know how much you now cherish where you are. Yeah, exactly. Because after a while, I think, I think when you're, when you're young, you're bright eyed and bushy tailed. Yeah. It's all a bit, a bit of fun. It's, it's, it's like uh, you're playing the tennis tour and you're a backpacker. Um, yeah. If you lost matches and you couldn't afford it, then you'd spend the night at the train station. You know, there's, you're not having a... You're not, you know, I slept at Milan train station a few times. I slept on airport floors multiple times. One time I was in Barcelona and you know, I just managed to get to sleep. It was freezing. It was freezing cold. I just managed to get to sleep on the floor of the 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 uh, airport there and bloody Manchester United have come away with a draw in Champions League and they woke me up you know all the fans were on a flight at like two in the morning uh so it's tough you're not eating well uh yeah. and after a while that that really becomes a, a real mental battle yeah you really question if you want to do it if it's worthwhile uh your mates are all at 21st so I, or 18th 21st and yeah. um you know they're sending yeah, the you messages as they're as they're yeah they're on the drink and they're having a good time and and you're really grinding away so one way i managed to kind of top up the money a little bit was i'd play club tennis mostly in germany and switzerland uh and what does that mean explain that for us yeah so so club tennis is like i guess club footy here where you know, these the in the summer in 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 Europe they have these these leagues where uh, they will pay for you to play for their club and you'll play one or two matches a week for them over the course of a few months. Now it's terrible for your ranking because during that time you can't play any tournaments yeah, to sure. get your points, which is why you're over there. But you need it for the money also, so it was yeah. kind of this catch twenty two there. So I did it. Um, I'd always had heated discussions with actually Lab back home where he'd say, why are you doing club tennis? Why are you doing club tennis? You shouldn't do it back yourself. If you don't have money, then quit, whatever. But for me, it was just something that kind of, while I was learning my game, it, it would extend my, my, my career a little bit. And, you know, I wasn't going to quit tennis because of the finances. I didn't want to do that. Yeah. Oh, if I were to quit tennis, it was because I wasn't good enough. Yeah, uh, sure. So I'd play the club tennis, had a, some really good mates that I've met from club tennis, my missus from there. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's good things to come out of it. 
But one of the good things also was the fact that it kind of, you'd play, you'd have no money by the time you got to club tennis. You'd kind of fill up your wallet a little bit and that would get you through till, you know, that'd probably get your flight home and it'd get you through till, I don't know, September or whatever. And then there were a couple of Australian tournaments that would kick in. So it wasn't easy and that happened for a few years. And I look back on it now and you remember the good times, but you also remember the tough times too. And, yeah. and it, it, it wasn't easy. And, and actually going in and playing a bit of club tennis and actually being in an environment that you were comfortable with again, with, with supporters and, and with friends uh, that you'd met was actually a really nice mental break from it all because sure. there's sometimes when you're by yourself over there and, and, you know, I was, I, I don't know, you, you kind of lost, reason to to play you didn't really want to do it 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 was becoming um that sense of enjoyment that you used to have from it when you were a kid just starting off wasn't there anymore so i actually i I look back now and i'm really grateful actually that i had those those few years where where i could go into the club stuff i'd be able to play i'd be able to get a little bit of money but also i'd be able to be you know the 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 20 year old again that you know i kind of missed out because you know, soccer world cups were on and you'd go out and you'd have a few drinks with the boys. And it was nice to, to have a bit of a reprieve because you definitely felt the pressure for a long time. And, and that was a nice little actual mental break more than anything uh, that kept you going a little bit longer. I can hear calling out my name. That's where we will end part A of my chat with John Millman. Amazing story so far. And I guarantee if you enjoyed that, You will enjoy the rest as well, so don't forget to tune in to part B.